The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Distorting the truth, even bold-faced lying, has become so common among politicians in America that the public appear to simply accept it as normal. Consider how Hillary Clinton was widely regarded as dishonest, yet millions of voters supported her anyways. But Jay, has this attitude thoroughly poisoned American culture, or is there still a bedrock of honesty in the country? Well, Tom, I'm convinced there is a bedrock of honesty, and there's so much in the press, a distortion of all the lies. And you mentioned Hillary Clinton, very likely that she could be the candidate for president again in 2024, even though most of the country knows her as a liar. So things have changed, but I'm the eternal optimist, and I I don't think it's going to change for long. And I'm really hopeful a new breed of politicians will be coming to us in the November election that will be more focused on the truth. And those that get away with lying will decline with their power. But I'm fascinated with the subject, and I was excited to read a short book about lying by Alexandra York, a terrific writer and lecturer. Book's a few years old, but I read it and was so excited about it. I feel like she really nailed the problem that I invited her to be on our show, The Other Side of the Story. And so she's with us now. And Tom, give us a little detail about her background. Well, most relevant to our program, Alexandra is the author of the 2016 book, Lying as a Way of Life, Corruption and Collectivism, Come of Age in America. In this important book, she identifies examples of how lying no longer brings the negative consequences it once did in America. Despite urgent warnings, she ends optimistically by offering us a practical list of can-do activities that individuals, neighbors, and communities may initiate to thwart the alarming process now gaining momentum to complete the total cultural collapse of Western values. We will link to this wonderful book in the notes under the podcast on Monday. And here's some details about Alexandra York. Alexandra received the 1997 Whiting Memorial Award for Outstanding and Continued Contribution to the Advancement of Society from the International Society for Philosophical Inquiry. She's been published in magazine and newspaper articles, book and movie reviews and poetry in England, Australia, Mexico, South America, Russia and Spain, as well as the United States and Canada. Her work has appeared in publications as varied as Reader's Digest, The New York Times, USA Today, 
Reason, America Arts Quarterly, and the list goes on and on. And she's currently the art and culture columnist at Newsmax.com. Alexandra York is founding president of American Renaissance for the 21st Century, a New York City-based 501c3 nonprofit educational foundation devoted to a rebirth of beauty and life-affirming values in all of the fine arts. And we'll include a link to the American Renaissance for the 21st Century in the podcast when it goes to podcast on Monday. So this is going to be an exciting interview. Somebody who obviously knows a lot about how culture is changing in the United States and what we should do to stop it. So welcome to the show, Alexandra. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, great. Alexandra, you have written for many years on the decline of America, predicted by Alex de Tocqueville almost 200 years ago when the Frenchman toured and wrote about our country. He said that if And when we lose our goodness, we will lose our country. Tell us how you see this perhaps happening today. Well, my book that you mentioned, Lying as a Way of Life, is a good jumping off point because lying, of course, is a moral issue. And it feels good is also a moral issue. And ethics is a branch of philosophy. So we first have to remember that America is the only nation in the history of humankind to be created philosophically. Other countries have eons of history where cultures and values have changed throughout centuries. But America was founded literally on ideas. And that is a first. And the major underpinning of all ensuing ideas were liberty and individualism. So it's these two gravitational magnet forces that formed the moral compass guiding all that followed in our constitution. And unfortunately, It's these very fundamental moral compass now that has been abandoned. Sovereignty of the individual and freedom to act on one's own self-interest, as long as you don't infringe on the individual rights of anyone else, are now under attack and in severe danger of being obliterated. So the decline of good, good meaning moral and right, is being threatened not by immorality, which everyone understands like lying, but by amorality, which nobody understands and I'd like to talk about. Then we also have to consider pragmatism, which is the philosophical base for amorality, which is the physical base for lying. So these are the two weapons that are at work destroying our country at the base right now. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, well, how did they gain a a foothold? You know, what what began the decline? Because... I'm 85 years old and I have a photographic memory and I can certainly go back 50, 60, 70 years and remember that things were very, very different than what you describe. But I don't remember what kicked off this change. Well, as usual in history, it got kicked off intellectually. Uh, It really started in the very early 1900s and we're talking over 100 years ago now. Uh, H.G. Wells wrote a book. I can't remember the name of it. It's in my book. But what he did in that book was put forth the idea of a global government. And he put forth the idea of a scientific elite that would run that global uh, government. So that was a very big deal at that time. And then in 1909, Herbert Crowley wrote a book where he 
presented the idea of redistribution from the haves to the have-nots. And then, of course, in uh, 1912, uh, Teddy Roosevelt started the Progressive Party. So you see, it all started in the intellectual realm. Then, I'm skipping, but the next big, big moment was in the 1930s, when several German Marxists came to Columbia University. They called themselves the Frankfurt School, and they had hoped after the Russian Revolution to establish Marxism in Germany, but and in Europe, and in entirety, actually. But that didn't work. And then Hitler came in, and most of them were Jewish, so they skedaddled to Columbia University at the invitation of, no surprise, John Dewey, and they established the Frankfurt School. Now, these people were evil. They purposefully infiltrated the culture. They were smart. They knew that politics is just the tip of the iceberg. So that one was in music, Ordano, another was in uh, critical theory, another one was a linguist. They were across the board professionally, but they worked together hand in glove to infiltrate smart guys, not politics, but the culture. They mm -hmm. went after academia. They went after Hollywood. They went after education. They went after the media. And they started inserting these ideas into the popular culture. They also started the studies programs, women's studies, gender studies, and so on. And these college courses were developed with critical thinking. I forget which one of them came up with critical thinking. I think it's Hawksmeyer, but critical thinking was a technique to take premises that people already had and criticize them which left a gap in their conceptual minds and then insert victimization. So what mm -hmm. they did was literally create a victimized society. There were women, there were homosexuals, there were all different kinds of groups that then formed a victimization group so they could then expect privileges because they were being victimized. And that was major, mm -hmm. major. Then we jumped to the 1970s, and Herbert Marcuse had a lot to do with the young people in the 60s against the Vietnam War and free, limb, free love and all that. But we jumped majorly to the 1970s and Saul Alinsky. Now, Saul Alinsky wrote Rules for Radicals, and that was a community activist handbook for people like Obama, who was his protege, to go into communities pretending to help them, but to actually destroy them so that they would be under the influence of the people who came in to help them. Now, they were also assisted by NGOs, which are non-government organizations. The UN has a big, big part to play in all of this. And they would go into communities and help them do this and that, but at the same time, they would instill the ideas of socialism, of fascism, of Marxism. And I want to stop you right there for a second, because this is amazing to me. You have so succinctly traced the history and what it makes me realize 
that I did not know that we, what we know as wokeism today and all the craziness going on didn't just start yesterday. It has its roots, what, back to uh, 1940. So this has been going on a long time. Even before that, it started literally at the turn of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Wow. wow. And is this all considered part of postmodernism? Well, postmodernism is certainly part of it because it's nihilistic. And what is nihilism? It's a destruction of values. Mm-hmm. And you cannot destroy a country like America, which was built on ideas. We didn't come about after kings and czars and so on. All these other countries were under oppression at some point. And by the way, because of that, you can understand why most countries, most people in most countries lie all the time because they came from oppression. And in order to live under those conditions of a czar or a king or somebody, you had to lie to get by. So it really became a way of life. But it's new in America, as you said, Jay, our country was not built on that. But uh, postmodernism is certainly a part of it. Look how it's destroyed the arts. Mm-hmm. Well, am I wrong? I put most of the blame every day on the Democratic Party. Perhaps that's unfair. I'm at the point where anything I read in the newspaper, here on the radio, watch on TV that comes through the party seems like a party line, and it's never true. Uh, I'm not sure the Republicans are a great deal better. How would you compare them? I would say that the Democrat Party, I don't call it the Democratic Party anymore, I call it the Democrat Party, has been taken over by radical Marxists. And because of that, people like, I call him O'Biden, because Obama is clearly one of the puppeteers, um, people like that buy into it because they want power, they want their nice little jobs, they want their perks and their kickbacks. Uh, So it's to their advantage personally to continue with these very egregious ideas. I do think the Democrat Party has pretty much uh, gone by the way of Marxism at this point. The Republicans are mixed. There are a few good ones, but uh, by and large, I find the Republicans to be weak. Even when they have all three houses, they don't seem to get much done. So I'm not certain why all the Republicans are in it. I think some of them are in it because when they get out, they get to be lobbyists and uh, they make a whole lot of money. I see a lot of young, sometimes former military people running for seats in the House of Representatives. Can we look perhaps for a new breed of politician in the Republican Party that will become seated next November? It's pretty much of a foregone conclusion. The Republicans will take the House. We don't know how big the majority will be. I'm hopeful there'll be a different breed. What are your thoughts? It's possible. But there will be two telltale signals, in my view, as to whether they are sincere or whether they're just after more of the glory. And those two things are, if they go to Congress and they start seriously working on deregulations and 
they go for term limits because the founders expected people who went into Congress to be what they called citizen politicians. They didn't expect them to be like McConnell and Rose, what's her name? Uh, Pelosi. Pelosi, thank you. They didn't expect people to be in there for 30 years. They expected them to go and serve their terms, self-imposed terms, help the country the best they could, and then go back to their lives. We did not have professional politicians until probably this century. So if, a, if an aspiring Republican feels strongly about deregulation uh, and about term limits, then we will know that they're not in there for their own personal long-term value, that they're actually in there for the country. So that's what I would sort of look at. Mm-hmm. I guess they also have to be fairly courageous people, as we saw recently with the Supreme Court judgments and the reaction from the leftists. They have to be able to stand up to that. That's a very, very good point. And maybe that's why military people will be good ones to go. Well, I think business ethics have suffered tremendously. We seems like every company we deal with, we no longer get straight answers. We find a lot of their marketing dishonest. I, I think your answer to how we'll know if we have a, a new and better Congress is uh, terrific. How do you know in dealing with business people anymore, how, what the veracity of their promotion is? That's a good question. I would say several things. Number one, if they are, a, as we call it, a woke company, and if they parade and protest all the politically correct poison pills, you know already that they're no damn good. And the other thing is, I blame Americans very, very much. Uh, without American business and government, China would never, ever have become a power to threaten us. But American businessmen have a habit of being amoral, which is a subject I'd like to get into just a bit because no one understands it. And they went to China and uh, built up companies there, started bringing cheap products back here. And I've been to all these countries. And it is very obvious that unless you, Russia, China, practically every country except all of Western Europe, if you are to survive, every business is at the pleasure of the government. So every business knows that the governments can shut them down in one second. So when Americans go over there and know that the only way they can deal with these foreign companies is through bribery or actual payoffs or treats or whatever it is they might give them, information, intellectual information, technological information. They know they can't get anywhere because that's what the Chinese companies need to do to stay in business and please their own governments. So once Americans businessmen got used to lying, bribing, cheating. I think it got ingrained. I talked to one young man on the way back from Shanghai a few years ago, and I asked him directly about this. I'm guessing he was maybe in his 30s somewhere. And he said, unapologetically, 
that of course you have to bribe, of course you have to even go to the local henchman and pay off and you have to blind your eye to the uh, people who disappear every day. You have to blind your eye to the re-education camps. And he admitted it freely, but he had, the thing that surprised me was that he had no thoughts about that. He didn't, in the privacy of his own mind, say, well, you know, this is wrong, but I have to do it to get along. He saw nothing wrong with it. Morality, conformity to the rules of right conduct, moral or virtuous conduct, also the doctrine or system of morals, ethics, duties. Immorality, immoral quality, character or conduct, wickedness, vice. Now comes the biggie, amorality, neither moral nor immoral. Now the Oxford English Dictionary has an even better one. Amoral, not within the sphere of moral sense, not to be characterized as either good or bad, non-moral. Now, if somebody adopts this, and most everybody has by now, either by action or by acceptance, it means that there is simply is no such thing as right or wrong anymore. Anything goes. Anything goes. And so you say or do whatever is needed to get what you want at that moment. Now, of course, that is based on the philosophy of pragmatism. Pragmatism has no principles. Pragmatism says, if it works, do it. If it doesn't work, don't do it. It doesn't say a word about whether it's right or wrong or good or bad or high or low, if it works. And in fact, recently, I can't remember how long ago it was, Obama, who's the champion of liars, he's a natural at it. uh, He spoke to, I think it was a graduating group of some sort down in Argentina. And he said, he articulated it exactly. He said, look, you youngsters are going out into the world. And he said, don't be concerned with things like socialism, capitalism, fascism. He said, forget about all that. He said, do what works. He said, all the isms don't matter. You just do what works. Well, if you do what works, that means you do what works moment to moment to moment. You don't think long-term. You don't think hindsight. You stay in the moment. You do whatever it is you have to do, including lying, including cheating, including whatever it may be that we consider immoral. You do it because it works at the moment. And that Alexandra, is- can we can we get that quote somewhere? Do you I mean specifically that is truly the most telling of the personality of Obama, who I've always thought was the worst president in American history. But a, a quote like that really tells it all. And I really appreciate, and I'm sure your listeners, our listeners do, a, a true definition of what amorality is and pragmatism. Pragmatism is a word used all the time, and I don't think people really understand it clearly. I'm going to write an article about all the putting these things all together because you've brought up things that people have a fuzzy knowledge of but don't really understand it. So it's so very useful. Absolutely. And unless you get underneath the tip of the iceberg, unless you go down deep, you will never, ever, ever understand what's going on on the top. 
And our problem in this country, politics is the tip of the iceberg, as I already said. We have a culture crisis. We are losing America as a culture. And a culture is far more than politics. It's education, it's, it's entertainment, it's leisure time, it's relationships, it's family. It's everything that makes up the shared values of any culture. And in America, our shared cultural values have been reason, responsibility, productivity, taking care of your family. We're losing the very roots of our country as an idea, and everybody thinks it's politics. Well, politics is the icing on the cake. We need to get down to the philosophical and the moral issues that are killing this country. Mm-hmm. So the politics are a reflection of the culture. It's not exactly. necessarily, yeah. Now, if we get people in the Congress who actually have a moral compass and the courage and the strength to stand up for moral values, Do you think the government has a role to play in preventing companies, for example, from going to China and exploiting their system and, you know, using slave labor or whatever? I mean, is there a role for the government to play to stop people from doing what the companies that I dealt with did? I don't think so. I think there should be separation of economics and uh, state the same way there's a separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. If they, so want, people, if they want to be, uh, what's the best word I can think of, prostitutes, well, then yeah. I guess they are prostitutes. But we all, we all have the ability not to purchase their products. Mm-hmm. So in other I, words, we, we don't want more dictatorial government. We want a more ethical population. That's right. But we need limited, limited, limited government. Our government is like an octopus with not eight tentacles, but 88,000 tentacles. Uh, they're, right. they're in our face. And it's not just federal. It's state and local. I call local governments tiny tyrannies. For heaven's sakes, you can't mm-hmm. build a, a deck on your, do- on your house without permission. So we have to be careful. It's not just the federal government. It's everywhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any question about it. We're getting close to where our break will be, but I want to tell a funny story before that. And then after the break, uh, Alexander, I want you to start with some ideas of how we get on a road back to uh, the culture nation we once were. But uh, we generally credit Richard Nixon for opening up China. And I wonder now if we should be giving him credit, whether it was a good idea to open China. But I had the displeasure of seeing live the worst opera I have ever seen in my life. I'm guessing the worst opera ever produced. And it's called Nixon in China. They took the actual transcripts of uh, Nixon and his Secretary of State meeting with the heads of China, and they sung the transcripts. Are you familiar with that, Alexander? I have had six row center seats at the Metropolitan Opera for over 20 years. That is an opera that I absolutely refused to see. <laughs> well, I, you, you did I, the right, yeah, you did the right thing. Although, I, you know, there's some benefit in seeing what is the worst possible thing. 
I was very young when uh, Nixon, and I do not consider Nixon opened China. I considered Kissinger opened China. Okay. Uh, but even, even then, I saw the writing on the wall. I said, if we open up China like this, China will overtake us. And I could see that from the day it happened. And of course, now it's happened. In fact, there's a very, very good book I recommend to everyone. It's by Michael Pillsbury. And he was part of the problem helping Nixon, but he now sees the error of his way. And the book is called uh, The Hundred Year Marathon. And it goes step by step and shows what China has done and what China plans. Because, you know, the West will never understand the East. I'm very close to the Japanese community because I do a ceremonial Japanese tea. Yes, in my kimono on my knees. But I know the Eastern mind very well. And when they say they have six faces, it is really the truth. And the other thing that the um, Asians have, and China has it to a T, is patience. Xi doesn't care if he beats America in his own lifetime. He's in it for something much, much bigger. And the Western mind does not understand that. Mm, wow. On that note, we have to go to a commercial break now. We'll be right back with internationally published author Alexandra York. She's the author of the 2016 book, Lying as a Way of Life, Corruption and Collectivism, Come of Age in America. So stay tuned right after the break. Many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code AMERICA50 for 50% off any order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code AMERICA50 for 50% off. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Let the silent voices be heard. It was the rallying call that started it all. It's a wide spectrum of programming, from world and political news to societal and cultural stories. Six amazing years of news blogs, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. 
Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. So we're back with Alexandra York, an internationally published author and an expert on what's going culturally in our society. So Jay, I think you had a question for Alexandra. I do indeed. Alexandra has so beautifully described the mess we're in, how it started over 100 years ago, how it is ingrained in much of society today. Alexander, can you describe a road back for our culture and nation to where we were long ago? I can, and I think the best way to do that, because I am a realist, but I also know that if Americans come to really understand the situation we're in, that the braver ones will step up. I also know from experience that when the braver ones stand up, neighbors and community people will stand up with you. Nobody likes to be first. At the end of the book, I give 19 things for people to actually do, because what good would it do for me to spend an entire book telling people what's wrong and how it got wrong if I can't give advice on how to get out of it? So what I think the most productive thing for me to do, obviously, I can't read all 19, but what I can do is just sort of give a sentence out of each one that will point the direction. Would that be okay? Sure, go ahead. Okay. Communicate or circulate the information in this essay to everyone you know who needs to understand how America is in such a whole culture crisis. Now, there I am pushing lying as a way of life. But we priced it at 99 cents. Thank you very much. I spent, I spent months writing it. We priced it at 99 cents. It's 100 years and less than 100 pages. And if people will read that book, I'm not in it for the money, obviously. It really will help. Now, number two, name the disease. If you hear a lie or a politically correct bromide, say so respectfully. I think you are misinformed and then state the truth. Number three, do not let yourself become labeled as any part of a group naming victimization. Do not associate with any group. We are Americans, we are individuals, and we stand individually. Four, do not give in to peer pressure. Stand firm in your moral beliefs, not pushing them onto others, but belonging to your own self, your own values, and your own moral cord. Five, and this is really important, if you are a parent, teach your children to be independent in their value system and refuse to cave in to other students' or teachers' persuasions or threats. Do not conform. There's a lot more to that one because I blame parents a whole well, lot. Well, you know, let me stop you there, Alexander, because I realize now I'm going to link our podcast and this show while it is on live four times uh, this weekend. It becomes a podcast on Monday, and we'll link the podcast to uh, my review of your book. And in that review, I think I listed all 19. If I didn't, I'll go back and, uh, and rewrite it. But I've got some other questions for you. 
that I think are fascinating to the audience. And I really want to whet their appetite either to get the book, to read my review of the book and find out more of what you want to accomplish. My next two questions are, have we lost a generation of our children to wokeism and the thought that they deserve much that they don't earn? Do you, do you think it, part of your philosophy that we were in the middle of discussing to bring the country back, it would seem to be really important to save the children who are just now getting out of high school or college. And you already mentioned uh, one of those points for parents, but have we lost a generation or is, is there hope in the next five years we can do something very strong to prevent that? I think we have lost three generations, wow. not, not just the ones now, because the teachers who are teaching the children, politically correct indoctrination, are already indoctrinated themselves. It goes back actually four generations, but it goes back seriously three generations. And it came of serious age in the 60s. And what are now baby boomers really wholeheartedly and with every good intention made their children vulnerable. They spoiled their children. They failed to insist upon their children valuing the values that made America great. And I think that generation of parents really fell down. Now, that doesn't have to be permanent. I know now people in this age bracket who are now grandparents. And they, this is where I'm hopeful. The grandparents of today who were hippies in the 60s, I guess, um, yeah. they have often, and I've run across this quite often, actually, which is good. They have realized that they lost their own children. And they readily admit that they are trying to save their grandchildren. I think the 60s generation, in a sense, even though they failed themselves, I think they are the great hope. And if there are any grandparents listening to this program who hold traditional American values of truth and responsibility, productivity, to the extent that they can counteract their own children's ideas, I think that that really might just work. Wow. Well, that's great. Now, I'll take a wild guess, Tom. I, I'll bet you'll agree with me. I'll bet half of our audience are grandparents. So that's great mm -hmm. advice. You know, I can tell you uh, something to inspire you. And, and that is that I think that very young children instinctively stand up for good values. And I'll give an example as to why I think that is the case. They almost have to be taught to be liars or, or to, you know, be weaklings. Because my daughter runs this business called fairy tale princess parties in which she sends Cinderella or Belle or Prince Charming or Spider-Man to all kinds of different events. And at the end of the event, she asks the students or she asks the, the young people, she says, so, we're going to do a superhero oath. First of all, should you be liars or tell the truth? Should you be 
courageous or should you be frightened? Should you be strong or should you be weak? And they give all of the answers that you would hope they give. And these are sometimes just four-year-olds that are instantly saying, yes, we have to tell the truth. We have to be courageous. We have to be strong. And then at the end, of course, my daughter's characters give the birthday girl or the birthday boy a certificate to be a real superhero with these attributes. So my question is this, Alexandra, Am I right in thinking that very young children, before they've been schooled in wokeism, are naturally ethical? You are absolutely right. There are very, very few bad children. They become bad once they go to school. I don't have children by choice, but my favorite ages are from two to five. Once they go to school, it's problematical. But if you can get the children. Well, who was it who said, uh, famous Islam said, give me your children until they're seven and I will have them for life. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, actually, it was a, inst- a Russian said it. It might have been Lenin. I don't remember who said it, but I certainly remember the, the statement absolutely. because it was so yeah. true. But, yeah. but you're absolutely right. If you can teach these youngsters, they start conceptualizing very well at age three. If you can take three, four, and five-year-olds and instill in them a moral compass, you will have done invaluable work. When I was in college, I put myself through college teaching ballet, and I owned a dance studio. And the Chiquetti Council of America, where I was certified to teach, uh, they had the grade system. You had to be six in order to try to take grade one. Well, I I was 19 by then. I took my little four-year-olds to Detroit, and I said, you watch my little four-year-olds. They were so good. They understood everything. So what you're saying is absolutely true, ages three, four, and five. If you can teach them, you may save them. That's interesting, Alexandra. I remember, for example, when my daughter was about three, she was playing in the playground, and she came over to me to talk about some kid that she just met on the playground. And I said, oh, you mean the little black girl? And she looked and she says, um, well, I mean the one with the red hat. And the interesting thing was she hadn't, <laughs> she hadn't even noticed the racial difference. So I love it seems it. to me, that, yeah, it seems to me that instinctively children will be ethical and will be non-racist and that sort of thing. So I guess what my daughter's doing in the parties, she's reinforcing what is a natural tendency and is something we should all do. Bless you know, her. That, um, is, that is a wonderful story. I'm so glad you told me, and I wish her all the luck in the world. Well, uh, Tom's daughter and my wife do somewhat similar things. My wife runs an educational puppet troupe for second, third, and fourth graders, where through comedy, and it's a Japanese uh, form of puppetry you might be familiar with, where the puppeteers are totally in black with black masks, but the puppets are life-size. And they teach with humor about bullying and stranger danger and handicapped children. And the shows are all very, very funny, but teacher moral. And these kids are absolutely hypnotized by it. And you ask them questions, just as Tom was saying that his daughter does. The puppets ask questions of the kids afterwards and the kids scream out. The, the right moral and ethical answer. So, yeah, I think uh, there, is, there are ages where there is definitely hope. Now, I am not a religious person, but I have a religious philosophy 
that is extremely simple and it relates to what we're talking about in ethics. My philosophy is it's really nice to be nice. I know that's simplistic, but I've found in my 85 years that being a good person and being nice to other people is uh, its own reward. Uh, I would therefore think that people that do bad things and lie and cheat don't sleep well or don't feel good about themselves. And so there's maybe it's their own punishment. What's your reaction to that thought? I disagree entirely. The reason being that they are living a life of amorality. And the only way you can feel bad about lying is if you know it is bad. If you have adopted a philosophy of amorality, then you don't think about it anymore because all you do is live that life. You say whatever is required to say to get you through the next minute. It doesn't matter what it is. And and there's no remorse because you have bought into a philosophy that says there is no morality. So I don't, I wish it were true, but I just don't think it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'll just say one thing quickly here. The group that Janet Lear leads, that's Jay's wife, is called the Kids on the Block of Central Ohio. And I'll include links to that and my daughter's company as well under the podcast, because both groups are helping reinforce what children would be naturally, and that is ethical. So, you know, I I guess they're doing it more than just entertainment, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, I'm very glad to hear it, and I certainly think they should be publicized as much as possible. Right. Now, how does the United States compare to Europe in terms of the ethics of lying you have written about? As I said earlier, most countries, if not all, have been under some sort of totalitarianism of some sort. Kings, czars, uh, tribal leaders, religious leaders, whatever it might be. I think that in certain countries, it's better than others. It's better in England. It's better in France. But when you get to most of the other countries, not only are they generally amoral, meaning they don't think much about the subject, but it's also, and I've traveled a lot, and I don't mean just light traveling, I mean spending a lot of time in different places. I also think one of the problems is that many people are not very conceptual. They get conceptual enough to drive a car, cook a meal, do the mundane practical things in life, But I've noticed that uh, most, unfortunately, do not actually get into a conceptual level of abstraction. They don't think about reasoning. They don't think about uh, um, any philosophical. They might be tied to a religion which would hold their uh, thinking back. It doesn't have to, but certain religions are more oppressive than others. So I think that starting with the young ones, like your daughters have done, is such a great idea. But I think that until the education system helps children learn how to reason, we're born with a faculty of reason, but we're not, it's not an automatic thing. Reasoning has to be learned and it has to be practiced. So non-contradictory thought 
is the crucial thing, I think, to get people to become more conceptual, more aware of what they're doing. Because if you think in abstracts and you think, well, this, is, this idea is contrary to that, then you start comparing ideas. I think until that happens, people are going to live pretty much on a perceptual, low conceptual level. And that does not lend itself to deeper thought. Well, I'm going to jump in here and tell our audience about something, as far as I know, you did yesterday. You wrote an essay, and I will send it to Tom and make sure he links to it, about when you're looking at art, don't listen to a narrative of what the art is. Don't even read the title of the art. Just absorb the art and and see how you interact with it emotionally. I thought that essay was uh, phenomenal. And I'm just kind of the lucky idiot that has been looking at art the same way pretty much all my life and not paying attention to what I'm supposed to think about or what the title says under it. I just love that essay. And I think a lot of our listeners will enjoy reading that. What was the uh, title of the essay, Alexander? I can't remember. <laughs> well, you don't know see. either. <laughs> I think it was called I think it was called Why Not to Read Descriptions of Art. Yeah. But yeah. it seemed counterculture. I mean, that's crazy. Why shouldn't I read what the author or artist put under their painting or or whatever? But boy, you made it clear why. Well, with my Newsmax articles, I write one article a month on the arts and then I write the next one on the culture, not politics, the culture. So there are a lot of articles there on art. And I point out in the article that you mentioned that if you let yourself be with the art, because art is a physical manifestation of the artist's values. So if your values match the artist's values, you are seeing your value system in a, in a physical entity. So it becomes a spiritual experience as well as an aesthetic one. So it's very, very important. I point this out in my Soul Celebrations and Spiritual Snacks book uh, because I tie spiritual experiences in a secular manner to uh, art, to um, art and nature and a beloved romantic person. So that's where that article was sort of leading that you can, religious people can do this as well. Uh, you can experience your own values in a very psychosomatic way by interacting with art without letting any interference come in. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a person I know actually was working in welfare in Canada, and they had an interesting perspective about immigrants from Somalia, for example. Now, you know that Somalia, of course, as far as I know, doesn't have a central government. It's run by warlords and lying and whatever you have to do to survive it. I suppose is quite normal. But what she told me was very difficult in dealing with them is that they would lie and not feel any remorse and not show any of the normal things that people would usually experience when they were caught. And she gave an example. She said, typically they would have uh, meetings with the immigrant from Somalia. And I'm not against Somalia. I'm just talking about what she told me. And what she said is they would come in and they'd put on this show of being very poor and they would wear poor clothing. But then accidentally she would see them in the shopping mall actually wearing very expensive clothes. And by investigating, she found that they were actually getting money from family members in 
uh, Saudi Arabia that they weren't actually telling us about. And she said, what was really difficult is dealing with these people because they did not feel any reluctance to lie. They didn't feel any guilt when they were caught. And so here's my question, and it's not a racist question. If anything, it's a culturalist question. When we bring in people from societies where lie, cheat, and steal is normal, should we be making some effort to get them to change those standards when they become part of our society? Or are we risking that they're going to actually sway our society even further in a direction that we don't want to go? Well, given the southern border, the way it is now, uh, it's, it's a disaster because these people are coming in in droves. In the past, when immigrants came in legally, they would uh, assimilate the American values of honesty, responsibility, productivity. And that's why we were called the melting pot. But that's not going to happen now. And I think the crisis at the southern border, which is on purpose, is probably the most dangerous security issue we have from externals other than China, Russia, Iran, and the obvious ones. Because we're bringing in people who have no concepts of our way of life, which is better because America is an idea, and they will never learn them because there are too many of them and they are not going to be able to assimilate. It's just impossible because of the numbers now. Mm -hmm. And I guess they had to lie and cheat just to get in. Precisely. But it is a way of life in those countries. And they, that's why I'm very sorry to have disagreed with Jay, but I do because I've had too much experience in, in observing that there is no remorse. They don't have the category of um, guilt. Mm -hmm. So should we be helping re-educate them or should we just stop immigration from these countries that don't share our values? Well, for the moment, we certainly should stop it. We have, uh, what, two million already this year. And it's going to be a while just to uh, deal with those people. I think that all immigration uh, should be stopped for a pause and, and see what to do with what we have now. Uh, if we didn't have the welfare system we have, which we can thank Johnson for, uh, we wouldn't be able to even have these things. If we had time, which we do not, I would go into the um, hell and hoops we went through coming back from Colombia, where my husband contacted COVID. He got over it. But I cannot tell you what we went through to get back into our own country as citizens, and then watch tens of thousands come in every single day, and we don't know a thing about them. So that's a big issue. Mm -hmm. For sure. That'd be another show for maybe we can bring you back. <laughs> well, I, I'm already committing to bringing you back, Alexander. Every so often, uh, special guests do make a, a second appearance, only a very few. But uh, I think we'll focus on those questions. I want to ask uh, one very, I think, optimistic question and get your reaction. Our Constitution has been under attack for many decades. Last week, we saw the Supreme Court support the Constitution in three areas. Would you comment on that? On the uh, gun issue, uh, we have a Second Amendment that's very clear. And I was very disappointed that Gorsuch gave the... Um, his blessing to states and governments telling people where they can carry. 
I thought that this, the decision was a good one, but then he messed it up at the end. The abortion issue, uh, Roe versus Wade was clearly unconstitutional. The constitution says nothing about abortion. I think by turning it back to the states, it was a step in the right direction. However, I don't think that's where it should be. The 10th Amendment says all things not delegated to the federal government should return to the states or be taken by the states or the people. Now, what most people intend that to mean is that the people vote for the representatives of the states so they have a say. But the way I interpret it on the abortion issue is uh, the decision of an abortion should be to the people, and that means to the woman and the woman alone. Our body is our first piece of property, and I think we have the right to do with it what we want. As far as the coach is concerned, that's a tricky one, because I certainly believe in freedom of religion. However, there are two problems with that. Number one, he is a coach at a public school. If it were private, it would be different. Because he's a teacher and a coach at a public school, he's a public employee, even if only from the community that he's from. So I don't think he should be able to do that kneeling because he's a public employee. That's legally. Secondarily, if you, the students are kneeling with him, now that puts pressure on the students. Suppose some students don't want to kneel, but they feel they really have to, to please the coach or be one of the guys, or maybe somebody is sitting on the bench and he wants to, you know, be a center back or whatever they're called. And he, he's afraid if he doesn't kneel, he won't get a promotion. So I think there are things wrong with that one. But by and large, I think that the court is trying to be originalist. And I found it very interesting that Justice Beyer, when he resigned, he did not send his letter to President Biden. He did not say, dear President Biden. He said, dear Mr. President. So who knows even what the uh, liberal uh, members of the court think of Mr. O'Biden? Jeez, I have, I have so many more questions for you, but we have to wrap up there. Yeah, our guest today has been Alexandra York, an internationally published author, and I really encourage people to look up her 2016 book, Lying as a Way of Life, Corruption and Collectivism, Come of Age in America. So thanks for being on the show, Alexandra. It's been my absolute pleasure. I have enjoyed discussing things with both of you. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. Well, this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.